Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass Clinical Edition. I'm Sass Elisha. And I'm Jeremy Heiner. And again, we're going to talk about clinical topics that are applicable to you and that you can use in the operating room immediately, like today. And today we're going to talk about another shock state. We're going to round out our shock state series. We're not going to tell you what it is, um, but it's going to be a good one. Yeah, and if you've listened to the other shock states, it won't be hard to figure out which one this is. So, Sass... What time is it? It is go time. It's go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. As we've mentioned before, we have crisis checklists available, and you can find those at beyondthemasspodcast.com. Just go ahead and go to that website, and we will have a link available for you to download those checklists. And there are 19 crisis checklists, so check them out. The crisis checklist that we've talked about, the previous shock states we've talked about will be there, and our shock state today will also be there. How much do these checklists cost? They must be expensive, right? Oh, yeah. No, they're very, very expensive, SAS. It's called Free 99. Free 99. <laughs> okay, all right. So go to the website, check it out. Get yourself some checklists. We're going to talk about shock today. This is our last shock state. So as we've done in the previous shock episodes, we've done a little review of shock. And shock defined is an inadequate oxygen delivery to the tissues. So we like to we like to keep it simple. And we are gonna divide out the cardiovascular system into three sections. Uh, we've talked about this before. So we have the tank, we have the pump, and we have the pipes. The tank is related to intravascular volume. The pump is the heart, and the pipes are what distribute blood to the tissues. So if the tank is low and we have low intravascular volume, that is simply hemorrhagic shock, hypovolemic shock. If the pump is inadequate, 
that relates to either cardiogenic shock or cardiac compressive shock. And if there are problems with the pipes where we have profound vasodilation, that is known as distributive shock, and that could either be neurogenic, anaphylactic, or septic shock. So as always, we have a case to present. So we have an 82-year-old male who comes to the operating room. He is scheduled to have EVAR under local sedation for a 6-centimeter infrarenal AAA. His vital signs are blood pressure 148 over 82, heart rate of 62, his respiratory rate is 18, and his saturation is 97% on room air. His history, he has a history of diabetes type 2. He is a smoker for many years. History of coronary artery disease. He had a cardiac stent placed two years ago for cardiac ischemia that he was having at the time. His medications include atenolol, baby aspirin, and glipizide and zestril. Okay, so Sass, which medications should we advise the patient to hold and which should they continue taking uh, during surgery? Yeah, so they should certainly hold the glipizide. They're not going to be eating and an oral hypoglycemic agent may make them hypoglycemic. Uh, they should hold the Zestril. We know that ACE inhibitors are being held for 24 hours because of the risk for refractory hypotension. And we just had a discussion, you and I, about this baby aspirin. Should we take it or should we not? What's being done in the hospitals? Yeah, so I think traditionally hospitals have held aspirin for at least a week prior to any elective surgical procedure. And I think that's probably commonly being done. However, there is a new school of thought of allowing patients to continue on their baby aspirin. And certainly with uh, this kind of procedure, um, there may be some surgeons who will allow their patients to continue on, on baby aspirin. Now, if for some reason we did need to reverse the effects of aspirin and the platelet dysfunction that is occurring because of aspirin administration, then we could administer either a platelet transfusion or DDAVP, desmopressin. Desmopressin induces an increase in plasma levels of von Willebrand factor. It also is, uh, helps with tissue plasminogen activator. So that's an option if we did need to emergently reverse aspirin. Uh, atenolol, I think it's pretty common to continue any beta blocker intraoperatively or perioperatively. All right, so Sass, now how are we going to set up for this case? What, what kind of studies are we going to look at preoperatively and what kind of things are we going to get ready uh, in order to do this case? Yeah, so of course, wanting to be looking at an EKG, looking to see if there's a chest x-ray. If not, one should be ordered. Um, certainly looking at labs, what's the patient starting H&H? That's going to be important. Of course, is blood sugar, electrolyte panel, and coags. All right. Now, in order to get this case going, we're going to want good IV access, at least two, large bore, arterial line. Central line is hit or miss. That kind of depends on the patient's history, but I, I would say it's probably uncommon to do a central line for these cases. Would it, you agree? Yeah, especially for EVAR. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, and then uh, you mentioned type and cross. We want to make sure we have bullet products immediately available. And then during the case, the surgeon's likely going to be asking for the patient to be heparinized. So you'll be administering heparin. You'll be drying ACTs to see how well they are heparinized. Now, one thing that we didn't mention earlier is where is this procedure going to occur? And more, more commonly now, I think EVARs are being done in the interve interventional radiology suites. Yeah. And so what are the biggest issues there as compared to being in your operating room where you know where everything is? And worst case scenario, if things went to hell, you have plenty of help. Yeah. So we love the OR, right? That's our home. Interventional radiology, depending on where it's located, could be far away from the OR. Now, usually there is an anesthesia machine, an anesthesia cart, but we do have limited access in the IR suites. You know, they've got all of the different radiology equipment that comes in, and so that could definitely limit our access to the patient's airway. So we have the patient in the operating room. We have a propofol drip infusing really slowly. Patient is lightly sedated but awakes when you call his name. And we mentioned the vital signs earlier. His blood pressure has been really good. About 30 minutes into the case, all of a sudden we see the heart rate, which stays at a, in the 60 to 70 range. However, we now we notice that his blood pressure is starting to sag. Um, his last three blood pressures had been somewhere in the 90s over 60s. His respiratory rate has gone up a tiny bit, and his saturation has decreased to about 95% on room air. Okay, so Sash, you're painting a clinical picture here of a patient who has a labile blood pressure or a decreasing blood pressure. Now, this patient's beta blocked, so we don't have really have any heart rate disturbances. And so I got to be thinking, what are the potential causes here? Right off the bat, anytime I'm thinking shock, I'm going to be... I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be thinking hemorrhagic shock. We have a AAA here, AAA repair and EVAR. And so blood loss is going to be my primary thought. But let's just diverge here for some differential diagnoses. And on our crisis checklist, we have several options for differential diagnoses. We have other shock states. Is it anaphylactic shock, cardiogenic shock, or even septic shock? Is there acute adrenal insufficiency or carcinoid syndrome? Now, these we would suspect if there was a reason to suspect them, if there was some history. Tension pneumothorax, is there a surgical complication that would lead to a tension pneumothorax? And I would have to look at the patient's respiratory status and, and how, they, how they're breathing. Was there a medication error that's causing the hypotension? What about a pulmonary embolism? And you can, if you look at our crisis checklist, you can see some of the other potential differentials, such as anemia or even vasoplegic syndrome. But like I said, and Sass and I always talk about differential diagnosis, and, and we talk about what's a front shelf diagnosis? What's more, more likely to occur? And if I have low blood pressure, I'm going to think, what's the last thing I did? Did I give any medication that's going to potentially cause low blood pressure? Or what's the surgeon doing? And is there a potential for hemorrhage? Because likely, and here we are talking about shock, our last shock state, well, this is a AAA, this is an EVAR, so maybe there's some hemorrhage happening. Yeah, and the good thing is with EVAR is 
they would be able to see on fluoro that um, blood is you know coming out of the aorta or leaking around the graft or something like that. So exactly. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Now, there are, when we talk about hypovolemic shock, there are two variations of hypovolemic shock, right? There's either the hemorrhagic shock, which is simply loss of intravascular volume, loss of blood volume, loss of blood, or there's the non-hemorrhagic shock, which is loss of fluid volume. So this would be your patients who have diarrhea, vomiting, dehydration. Definitely not our patient here that's in the operating room having an EVAR. Yeah, and you know, in anesthesia, what do we always say? Be proactive as compared to being reactive. So with any shock state, what's most important is rapid identification and treatment. As you guys know, you've been in the operating room for many, many years. Most of the time, bleeding is that occurs at the surgical site is slow but consistent and you may be able to see it or the surgeon's able to see it and control it but sometimes it can be faster or it could be incredibly incredibly rapid remember that someone can lose a someone healthy maybe not this man can lose a significant amount of their blood volume 30 40 percent before you see a rapid decrease in the blood pressure. And that's the re- the reason is, is because of the compensatory mechanisms within the cardiovascular system. Heart rate will go up, vascular resistance will go up to try to maintain that blood pressure. This patient is at risk in that A, he's beta blocked, V, he's a vasculopath, and therefore his degree of compensation may not last as long meaning when he loses, starts to lose blood or loses maybe 10 or 20%, that all of a sudden it dumps his pressure. Last, because his blood pressure dipped in the 90 over 60 range and we're only giving him propofol at a very slow infusion rate, we can't necessarily blame it on deep anesthesia. So therefore, what is it and how do we increase his blood pressure because pressures like that are probably not his normal blood pressures, and we want to make sure we have good peripheral perfusion. Yeah, so you're absolutely right, Sass. And the first thing, the questions you just asked were, what is it, and then what do we do about it to increase the blood pressure? So you had mentioned a little bit about compensated versus decompensated hemorrhagic shock or hypovolemic shock. 
And in a healthy patient, somebody who's going to be compensating will have a normal blood pressure. They may be tachycardic, not necessarily our patient here who's beta blocked. But decompensation occurs when we see hypotension and certainly tachycardia. So when a patient has lost a significant amount of blood, they will be decompensating and they will be hypotensive. Now in our patient who has labile blood pressure, that probably indicates they're losing an amount of blood, but maybe not necessarily really quickly in a situation such as an EVAR. So a, a surgeon may be losing some blood and not be immediately aware of it, but if we notice that there are some labile blood pressure problems, we can easily speak up and have them evaluate that. Now, one thing that we do need to recognize in terms of signs and symptoms are certainly any kind of dysrhythmias that would happen in the cardiovascular system, if there are ST segment abnormalities, if there are decreases in peripheral pulses or decreases in capillary refill, and then PEA is a potential problem. This is why I love the pulse oximetry. If you have a pulse oximeter with an active waveform, you're good. You've got perfusion in the finger. But if you have, if you lose that, that pulse oximetry waveform and you still have an EKG, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a rhythm and a pulse. And then combine that with a loss of end tidal CO2 and you've got yourself a serious problem without any perfusion. Okay, so SAS, we've, in previous shock episodes, we've talked about the mechanism of cardiovascular compromise um, in, in terms of at the cellular level. Can you review that for our audience today? Yeah, so, you know, in simple terms, the definition of shock, inadequate blood flow to the tissues, and specifically inadequate oxygenation of the tissues. Remember, all of our tissues are dependent on ATP, which is cellular energy. Without oxygen, when you talk about the way our bodies produce ATP, our bodies become unbelievably inefficient at producing ATP. Therefore, as the amount of ATP is decreased, the cardiovascular system is going to try to compensate to offset the inadequate perfusion and decreased oxygenation. However, in this particular case, hypovolemic shock, hemorrhagic shock specifically, it's a vicious cycle where there is continuous hypotension, continuous decrease of oxygen delivery to the tissue, and as a result, decreased amounts of ATP, there's going to be decreased peripheral perfusion, patients are going to develop lactic acidosis, and it's going to be a vicious cycle as someone continues to remain hypotensive. Yeah, and, and so in terms of diagnosing hemorrhagic shock, you just talked about the tissue level. We're going to see hypotension. We may see some tachycardia as long as the patient isn't beta blocked. And let's look at an H&H. &H. Let's draw some blood. Let's look at the hemoglobin, hematocrit value. Let's look at urine output. Are they producing urine? And visually recognizing bleeding is also a really good diagnostic indicator. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. 
From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. All right, Sass, let's get back to our case in the OR, our EVAR case. Yeah, so all of a sudden the patient is starting to complain of intra-abdominal pain uh, very acutely in the lower part of the abdomen. It's becoming more difficult to sedate him. Um, He's kind of seemingly a little bit on the confused side in addition to that. As the surgeons redo fluoro, what they see now is they see bleeding around the aorta and also into the aortic adventitia. And now we have a case where there is bleeding. They ask the nurse to get the instruments to open and the nurses are frantic in getting those instruments. And here you are bleeding outside of the aorta, surgeons wanting to open the abdomen to control the bleeding. And what would you do in the operating room acutely? Or if you're in IR, what are you going to do to help save this patient? Yeah, so first off, the surgeon's going to have to control the bleeding. That's priority number one. And from an anesthesia standpoint, we have to resuscitate the patient. So if if I'm in the OR, I'm going to be calling for some help. If I'm in IR, I'm going to be calling for some help. But help might not get there quickly. So first and foremost, we're going to need to secure this airway. The surgeon is going to open, so we're going to need an emergent intubation. And if I were doing this case, I would use succinylcholine and be careful with my propofol dose because the blood pressure is already really low. So let's get this patient intubated. And now the next and very important intervention is providing blood and blood products. If the patient is losing a lot of blood, then this could be a massive transfusion protocol situation. And in those situations, that brings up blood, uh, PRBCs, as well as FFP and platelets in in a very quick manner. Now, likely because this is an EVAR, we'll probably have PRBCs immediately available. Now, when a massive transfusion protocol is activated, that usually brings up blood and blood products in a ratio of one to one to one. And what that means is one packed red blood cell to one FFP to one platelet. Now the platelets may come up initially or they may come up on the second or third round because platelets come in either a four or six pack of pooled concentrated platelets. And what that means is four to six donors of pooled concentrated platelets are in essentially one unit, one super pack of platelets. And we'll be giving that when we're infusing several FFP and PRBCs. Now, in some massive transfusion protocols, as the protocols continue and as blood loss continues, uh, they may include fibrinogen supplements like cryoprecipitate or even recombinant activated factor seven. Some of the easy things that we also need to remember are discontinuing our anesthetic agents. So let's turn off the propofol 
And we already have an A-line in place, right, SAS? So how about some other things? What else should we consider in this clinical situation of our EVAR gone awry? Yeah, so remember our patient was heparinized. And so we need to have a discussion with the surgeon about reversing the heparin with protamine and also also considering giving tranexamic acid. Yeah, so in, in many hemorrhage situations, we're giving tranexamic acid. Yeah. Certainly for trauma-type hemorrhage situations and obstetrics, we're, we're administering tranexamic acid. And so with all of the interventions, the surgeons trying to control the bleeding, us trying to give blood and other blood products, and giving vasopressors and giving fluid, all in an effort to try to maintain a mean arterial pressure of greater than 65 Hopefully, with all of these efforts being done at the same time, hopefully we can control the bleeding and increase the blood pressure for the patient. Yeah, and and that's the goal. Now, I know there is some discussion when there is active hemorrhage of keeping a mean arterial pressure on maybe the lower end of normal. So maybe aiming for 60, 65. And then once that, that blood is controlled, certainly increasing that mean arterial pressure. So fantastic. All right. Secondary interventions, and these would be on the checklist. After we have established what we're giving our blood and blood products, we have a patent airway, we've turned off the anesthetic agents, we're, we've discussed this with the surgeon on what we're administering. What else should we be thinking about? Yeah. So we already, in this particular patient, had an arterial line in the patient. We would be looking at labs, getting an ABG looking at electrolytes, lactate levels, of course, guiding our intervention related to blood therapy by looking at H&H, looking at coags such as PT, PTT, and INR, and then looking at the number of packed red blood cells and blood products we've given to the patient, making sure that you draw an ionized calcium to make sure that the amount of blood that you've given has not chelated calcium and dropped the ionized calcium levels to a significantly low level, that will make bleeding worse. In addition, that will decrease myocardial performance. And that's a good point in terms of calcium. I know in trauma anesthesia, even after just a couple of red blood cells that are infused, that calcium is something that can deplete. And so definitely a good idea to, to administer some calcium and check calcium values. One thing, getting back to evaluating how your resuscitation is going, if you are administering a bunch of blood products, it, some facilities have the option of doing of assessing thromboelastography and looking at pretty much real time the effect of the resuscitation and the administration of blood and blood products. Okay, so the surgeons controlled the bleeding. Uh, we gave two units of packed red blood cells. Really didn't need to give any other blood products. Patient's blood pressure came up to about 130 over 60. His heart rate remains 62. As his blood pressure came up, we were able to give him more and more anesthesia. In addition, we are now checking an h and H. And this hemoglobin, which was down to about seven and a half, is now up to nine. So seemingly the patient has normalized. 
in terms of his cardiovascular status, and uh, they are going to continue to fix this patient's abdominal aortic aneurysm, and hopefully we'll have a good outcome when he wakes up. Yep, sounds like we're on the right track. All right, as usual, we have a couple of questions uh, for the students out there who are prepping for their NCE exam, and maybe even some CRNAs who are getting ready to take the CPC assessment. So let's start out with this first question. Which is the most common non-perfusing cardiac rhythm associated with massive hemorrhage? Is it A, torsade de poids, B, ventricular fibrillation, C, pulseless electrical activity, or D, ventricular tachycardia? And the answer, Sass, do you have, uh, do you have the answer for us? PA, just as we talked about earlier, PA is the most commonly occurring rhythm in someone who has hypovolemic shock. And is non-perfusing. That's the key. And again, when you're, when you're taking tests and looking, uh, trying to answer questions, make sure you pay close attention to the verbiage in the stem. And that will many times guide you to the right answer. The second question here. Which preparation of calcium chloride provides the greatest amount of ionized calcium per unit dose? And really, there's only two options. Is it calcium gluconate or calcium chloride? And the answer would be calcium chloride. Calcium chloride delivers three times more elemental calcium than calcium gluconate. And it's because it's the ionized form that leads to a greater increase in ionized calcium. So one thing to be aware of, though, is 10% calcium chloride, when we are giving that as an injection, go slow. Go slow in a peripheral IV. If you've got a central line, great. You can give it a little bit faster. But peripherally, you want to give it about one milliliter per minute, and usually the 10% Calcium chloride injection comes in a 10 milliliter syringe. So if you are going to give the whole thing, give it over about 10 minutes. Thank you so much for listening to Jeremy and I's podcast. We really appreciate you. If you like what you've heard, the way any podcast grows is by leaving a review. So please do that for us. And again, we hope that this information is going to be practical and is something that you can use to improve your patient's care. All right, everyone. CRNA Nation, that is it for this episode. Remember, keep ventilating and we will catch you on the next episode. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call him at 504 394-6557. 
Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.